You're listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR 855 AM. Thanks for tuning in. 3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and the treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. And morning, Alice. The studio, Judith. There's uh, me, my, me, Judith, and yep. Dean, and uh, Alice. Hello. Hello. And Hi. it's the 20th of uh, May. Uh, well, this is our post-election broadcast. And uh, One today... One of the first few, I reckon, yeah. apart from yeah. the Sunday you know, national shows, but we're here. We're so here. to talk about it. Yes, and um, it's um, raining out. Not not too cold, but no, rainy. Yeah, beautiful day today. Top of 20 it's going to be with a few showers, and tomorrow it's going to be the same as well. 20, slight breeze today. Mm. Not enough to fly a kite, but... Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I got a bit it's, soaked it's on my way in, on my bike. Oh, <laughs> yes, I bet you did. Yeah, a bit cold, but it's yeah. all right. But it's going to be warm all week as well. Mm. Yeah, it's mm. going to be quite a, a lovely week, so, yeah, I hope you're enjoying that. So, coming up... Oh, well, first of all, I want to thank Beyond Zero Emissions... Such a great show, looking at uh, climate, and um, yeah, it's always great to hear the people they have on, and yeah, great guests. Now, this morning, we've got another, you know, fairly big show with uh, an eye to the election, but also some other uh, topics as well. So, uh, late after eight, we have a, a story about the Extinction Rebellions Action at the offices of the Institute of Public Affairs last Friday, the IPA which is a right-wing corporate-funded think tank based in Melbourne. So we're going to hear from the people at that demonstration. Our government has failed us. They are in the pockets of fossil fuel companies. When 200 species are going extinct every single day, it's not okay. And uh, it's not okay. And that was Molly um, at that demonstration. Now, after eight, Mary Crooks, I don't know if you know about the Victorian Women's Trust, but Mary Crooks is the executive director there, and she's going to come on to tell us about her new latest project uh, called About Bloody Time, and she'll also give us uh, her thoughts on the election and um, the implications for women and women's policy. Mm. So I'm looking forward to to hearing Mary. And, And the Extinction Rebellion demo we'll hear from after eight as well. Fergus Kinnaird from the Australian Conservation Foundation is going to, to talk about the implications of the election for the environment, uh, you know, what the ACF was doing and in, in during the campaign, and also what next, you know, what we might be seeing. And we're also going to, just after this song, hear from political scientist Andrea Carson about the election. So she's getting up early, and I expect she's at a busy weekend. <laughs> we're really uh, thanking her for, for coming on the show. But right now... Land of Dream, Place of Dreams.
that was Place of Dreams, Echo Vandal and Birds. What a fabulous combination that is, and a beautiful, beautiful song. One of my favorites uh, over the last few months. Now, we're joined by uh, Dr. Andrea Carson, who's um, an associate professor in the Department of Communication and Media at La Trobe University. She's lectured in political science at the University of Melbourne, done extensive research on Australian politics, voter behavior, election campaigns, digital media. And uh, since your first time, it's the first time on Monday Breakfast, big welcome, Andrea Carson. Thank you very much. And I imagine you've had a full-on weekend. I have, actually. (laughs) Probably not as full-on as the political candidates and politicians, but it has been busy. Yes, I can imagine. And uh, and I think we're going, as you know, I'm, everyone is saying this, I'll just say it too. We're going to have a different conversation this morning than the one we anticipated last Friday. Very much so. Uh, I think the whole nation has had to stop and rethink about the way that it uh, reflects on this election, given that the polls and other expectations such as um, the betting markets and the political debates had us thinking this was going to be a Labor victory. Yes, indeed. And and it makes me, I mean, thinking of your background as a political scientist, I'm wondering, is there any science in politics? I think uh, it's, there's always some science, but there's also some art to it as well. Uh, and what we see here is that we've got a country that's rather fragmented in terms of its geography, in terms of its demographics and in terms of its media coverage. And what we saw was not a uniform swing across the country in political terms and um, that fragmentation was reflected in the way that the coalition was able to uh, uh, pick up seats in both Tasmania and Queensland, whereas in Victoria it was quite a different story with the swing going to Labor. Yes, and I think the story is still unfolding to some extent, and certainly there's been lots of commentary, lots of speculation about, you know, what happened and why the surprise. But I'm wondering, amidst all of that, I mean, and it's barely 24 hours, you know, so it's That's right. It's hardly There's settled. many facets to this and mm. um, probably many truths to it as well. It's very hard just to pinpoint one factor for why uh, our expectations uh, were... Uh, upended in this and um, while we got the outcome that we did. Yes, and I'm wondering if there's any, you know, amidst it all in all the conversation, are there any themes that are emerging that that seem to have a little more strength than others about what has happened? I think there are. Um, Other than fragmentation, I think minority governments are normal in Australia or at least very slim majorities and this is reflected in movement away from the two major parties that uh, in the 1960s and 70s, the two major parties could be guaranteed probably 80% of the vote and there'd be 20%, maybe even 10% swinging in the middle. That's no longer the case. We saw how low those primary percentages were for both major parties. And this has been an upward trend that um, Australians are voting away from the major parties and putting their votes with minor parties or with independent candidates. And I expect when we get these figures through, at 2016, it was one in four. I imagine it's that again, if not a little higher. Andrew, do you think the voters played it safe over the weekend? You know, with all the turmoil that's been happening within government over the last six years, was it a question that some people just sort of thought, look, let's get some stability? I really think um, 
That's a good observation. You could argue, though, that they were, could have placed stability with the Labor Party, which mm. had had the same leader for six years. But I think the economy was on people's minds and there was a lot of different messaging coming from the Labor Party. It did have a big target campaign and it put its policies out there. But that also requires an electorate that's really engaged with all those mm. policies to be able to think through them and to be able to weigh them up. Well, they tried to do too much, didn't they? I, th- I think it, it, in retrospect, it looks like that was the case. Um, whereas the coalition had a very simple message, and it had a bit of fear embedded in that message as well, which was that uh, they were the guardians of the economy. Uh, we've just heard that the Reserve Bank perhaps is looking at um, lowering interest rates mm. in April, um, in June, and maybe again in August. So the economy's softening. There was concern about the labour policies around franking credits and around removing negative gearing and the unknowns that that might throw up in terms of um, those on um, that were self-funded pensioners and also for those that were in what it meant for the housing market. And so your comment about playing it safe might play in that way in terms of the economy. Yes, and, and the other thing is that I think the coalition government, you know, really targeted that uh, in a bit of a scare campaign around um, what Labor was proposing and, and made the most of it. They certainly did. They had a very simple message. Campaigns often revolve around fear and hope. I think we saw a hope campaign coming out of Labor and we saw the fear campaign coming out of the coalition and that was that Bill Shorten's hand is in your pocket. He, he yes. wants to spend your money. Yeah. That was a message that very much came through and in some ways it reflected what we saw in the American elections in 2016. Again, there was the contrast to fear and hope and it was the fear that wins out. It's a very strong emotion. It's, it's uh, so worrying that it really is. I mean, now the other issue, I guess, is, is that this election was certainly dubbed the climate election. And uh, yet, I mean, we're seeing some commentary that, that uh, Labour's approach to climate change and environment scared voters. You've talked about also how, you know, the, the uh, community is divided around that perhaps. But uh, what, what do you see? How important was climate change? I think it was important. I think it was more important in this election than it was in others. And I was part of the Vote Compass team working with the ABC and looking at the data that we got back there. People were nominating that as the most important issue for them and we hadn't seen that before in 2016 or 2013. Mm -hmm. And when we asked the questions about whether um, more should be done on climate, even coalition voters were saying, yes, more should be done, or even in some cases, much more. And the majority of Australians were saying that more needed to be done on climate. But the question, and I think this is what you're pointing to, is how do you get there? Mm. Yes, um, the coalition claimed to have a climate plan. It didn't really map out the steps of how that was going to happen. And in some ways, the media coverage didn't give the same attention to climate as what maybe voters were feeling and thinking about climate. Maybe people heard... Sorry, I was just saying maybe people heard more from activists than other groups on this, because the activists were very very vocal around climate change in Adani. They were, but we also have to keep in mind that we have highly concentrated media in Australia with legacy media... And the front pages, especially off the News Corp papers, weren't dedicated to this issue. And if they were, it was um, wrapped in the context of fear. And, and Labor sort of seemed to have an open checkbook policy on climate change instead of actually, you know, addressing the, the, what they were going to do. 
Well, that's right. Again, it got um, reframed back into this binary of money versus climate. Mm. And when Bill Shorten was repeatedly asked, how much will this cost? How will you afford it? It was putting it back in that economic frame. Right. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, it is still the case that people that care, as you've pointed out, care about climate. And uh, we had Julie Bishop saying that uh, the coalition needs to pay more attention to it. How do you think Scott Morrison's going to play this one? Yeah, that's right. Julie Bishop did say that. And so did the independents. And we don't know what role the independents are going to play yet. The new independent for Indi, Helen Haynes, and also Starly Stegall, who took Tony Abbott's seat, both in their um, victory speeches put climate front and centre. Uh, we need to wait and see how the final results unfold, whether Scott Morrison indeed has a minority government or gets a very slim majority. In any case, even if he has a slim majority, he's going to have to pay careful attention to the crossbenchers um, because he will be so dependent on making sure his full team is there whenever there's voting. Um, and so I think climate is not going to disappear and the Australian people, I don't think, will let it disappear. So we might, and we didn't see him with his usual rhetoric of um, talking up cold during this campaign. So we might see some changing of language there and some influence behind the scenes. Yes, well, I mean, for people who care about the environment, uh, certainly that's going to be uh, important and people will be watching it carefully. I'm wondering, what do you think Labor needs to do now? Oh, they've got a lot to do. Um, they need to really reflect carefully on what happened with this campaign. But, of course, the agitation's already began about who the new leader will be, and we've seen both Kenya Plibersek and Anthony Albanese show their um, interest in um, becoming the next leader, Anthony Albanese putting in a very strong pitch, uh, which <laughs> is also circulating on social media. So how much of that distilled reflection is going to happen in the frenzy of also working out the next leader could create some interesting moments for the party, and I hope they do go through a thorough process for their own sake because they've been out of government for three terms now. Uh, and if they don't want that to be their ongoing fate, they're going to have to really reflect on why voters didn't give them the majority vote this time. Andrew, this probably might be a, a, a question out of line with the questions that we've had, but I know that the city, the seat of Chisholm down there where Sarah Henderson yep. is still being counted as we speak, they had about 120 votes or something to go down there this morning. Um, what surprised me on Saturday was the election was called as a winter coalition at like 9.30, 10 o'clock. But with more than four and a half million votes cast ahead of the election, how can that be? How can the election be called a victory without five million votes being counted or had they already been counted? Uh, some of them, I think, had. There was concern beforehand from the AEC that they wouldn't be able to get to the enormous number of pre-poll votes. Mm, a record so a number. Pardon? A record number of pre-poll yes, votes. Yes, that's right. Record number when you combine it with the postal votes. I think it was up around 37%. Uh, I think the swings were such and enough of the vote had been counted to be able to show that the seats that had been gained, that it wasn't going to be a Labor victory mm. and that it was going to be either a coalition victory or a coalition minority government. Chisholm, of course, isn't completely decided yet. We saw swings there against the coalition candidate of about 4%, but the primary vote is probably strong enough to hold for the coalition, um, but it might be one that ends up being recounted. It's very close. Mm -hmm. 
Well, Andrea Carson, thank you so much. I do appreciate how busy you've been, and we really appreciate you coming on to 3CR this morning. And thank you for your insights. And I imagine this will be an ongoing dialogue (laughs) over the next uh, probably month. (laughs) Well, the next three years, but yeah. I think so. And one of the things I'll be looking to see is how many women are represented in this next incarnation of the parliament. Uh, particularly given the troubles that the coalition's had attracting women and being able to promote them. Yes, indeed. And I'm also, if I can just squeeze in another comment, do you think now that the Labour left is going to um, get more power, more influence in the Labour Party, given the people that are putting up their hands for leadership? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think the public was moving more towards the right and um, and certainly more towards the centre. So... I would have thought conditions would favour someone from the Labor right. Of course, Bill Shorten is from the Labor right. Yes. Um, I'm not sure the public's at the space where they are looking for more left-leaning policies than what was already presented. But, of course, even though Bill was from the right, he did present some very left policies. So that's an internal discussion that they need to have, and there will be shifts in the power play and the factions within the ALP. So... I don't know how that's going to play out. Even if they take someone from the left, they're going to have to think about where they're positioning their policies. Yes. And hopefully Tanya Plevisek uh, puts her hand up. She, well, she's already indicated. Well, she has, I think. Mm. Yeah. Great. <laughs> so we know, we know where Dean's preferences lie. Oh, no, I know. No. Well, we've <laughs> just been talking about more women power. You know? uh, let's, of let's, course, let's get her in course, there. She's, and course. she's good at what she does, I think. Yes. And Bill Shorten's thrown his weight behind her as well. Mm. Oh, as his preferred candidate. Yes, and she's, of course, got deputy leadership, so, yeah, I mean, I... I but don't I think there's mm. something to the match-up between Albo and ScoMo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I did like Albanese talking himself up. So he's not, I'm not, I think he said something like, I'm not a bad bloke or something like that this morning. Yeah, he did. I remember, <laughs> yes, I remember that too. Andrew, but, thanks again. Have you got a busy day ahead of you? Uh, straight into teaching. Oh, oh, my goodness. Oh, well, I imagine the students will be just sitting there waiting <laughs> to hear what you've got Very kind. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you so much. Thank you. Okay. And that was Andrea Carson. Yes, Associate Professor in the Department of Communication and Media at La Trobe University. And obviously she's um, right out, going right out now to speak to her students, about, no doubt about the election, Australian mm. politics, voter behaviour, and uh, all the other things that she's expert in. Great to have her here this morning. It's, it's, it's amazing how many seats are still yes, to be counted. Yes, there are. Yeah, yeah, I think the is. city of Bass in Tassie, Boothby in South Australia... Lily in Queensland and Cohen in WA, but I did see there were six seats which turned on Labor and helped save the coalition, and we all thought they were all in Queensland, but um, yeah, there was a few, one in yes. Tassie and one in Yeah, Cessna more complicated well. than just Queensland, yeah. that, that's for sure, that's what I'm reading as well, yeah. And that was Sweet Jane by um, Cowboy Junkies. Another one of my favorite albums. <laughs> and uh, I thought. Busy weekend at your house, Judith. Just well, it was, more to Tom Waits. it was more Tom Waits at my house. <laughs> in the bathtub with a bottle of scotch, I'm afraid. 
anyway. Yeah, the election does that to people. <laughs> it does that to people. And, uh, yeah, so, but right now we're very excited to welcome the studio Fergus Kinnaird from the Australian Conservation Foundation. So welcome back, Fergus. Thanks, Judith. It's good to be here. Yeah, and uh, the last time you were on, and, and you're, I'm just, um, you're a finance person, you, you, your role in the, the conservation? Yeah, I have a background in finance and strategy, but at the moment I'm working as an economist. As an um, economist. At the Australian Conservation right. Foundation. And in that capacity, you came in to the studio before to tell us about the implications of the budget for the environment. And uh, I'm wondering if we might just recap on that, since that's the government that looks like it's going to be <laughs> at least uh, <laughs> partly in charge. In particular, that for every dollar spent on climate action, $4 will be spent on subsidising the use of fossil fuels is one of the key things that you guys took out. Yeah, that's right. That's something we, we picked up from the last budget. Yeah, so uh, it looks like the budget I came in and spoke about a couple of months ago is now the budget of Australia. And... Mm. Um, it's probably not surprising what I, I told you a few months ago. It's not a particularly good budget for the environment mm. or climate. We saw um, in that budget um, a trend that we've observed over um, the majority of the coalition's current time in government, which is a decline in federal environment spending kind of across the board. Um, a stat that I told you last time was um, between 2013 when the uh, 2013, yeah 2013 when the coalition. Uh, wrote its first budget to now, uh, environment spending has declined by about 40%. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that whole idea that we are actually getting 3.5 billion climate solutions package, in the long term, it was actually, we were a bit worse off than even knowing that it was 3.5 billion. Yeah, that's correct. There was a little bit of, um, I suppose, unless, <laughs> unless you were deep into the budget papers like <laughs> I was, um, there was a little bit of smoke and mirrors with that number. Um, it is true that, uh, in the broader sense of the word, the coalition had committed $3.5 billion um, to their new emission, uh, emissions reduction fund. I, I think it has a new mm. name now. Climate Solutions Package. Climate Solutions oh, Package. Yes. Um, but the majority of that wasn't actually uh, funded in the budget presented a few months ago. Only about 10%, I think about 180 million dollars was actually committed to the new Climate Solutions Fund. Um, of that $3.5 billion as well, uh, a large portion of it was actually just an equity injection into the Snowy Hydro Scheme, mm. so not new spending on the environment. Um, and, yeah, so, so the rest was left for uh, the kind of emissions reduction spending, of which only about 10% was actually funded in last night's budget, and the rest was left for, I suppose, future commitments That's right. I in remember 2022 that. and beyond. I yeah. remember that from our last conversation. Yeah, mm. so, so nothing um, encouraging right now. No, I mean, obviously we know the climate emergency is happening right now, and it needs like a vast acceleration mm. of action. And so, obviously, it's quite disheartening to see the majority of, I guess, the federal government's feature policy on climate be delayed um, and, you know, not even kind of kick into gear until later into the next decade, which is um, obviously kind of too late. Too little, too late, I would say. Yes, for sure. And over the uh, course of the election, was there anything new that emerged about the coalition's policies? Um, It's probably unsurprising for me to say there wasn't a whole lot. Um, Mm -hmm. The coalition didn't make the environmental climate a kind of feature of its uh, election campaign. They did make an announcement a couple of weeks in, um, a a $200 million spending 
announcement. Uh, we did some work on that when it came out, and uh, <laughs> in a similar trend to uh, some of the climate spending we just discussed, um, only about 60, I think 67 million of the 200 million dollars announced was actually uh, new spending. Um, the rest was kind of putting names to money already committed in the budget. So, mm. I mean, in a way, kind of a double, uh, double dip of uh, the same announcement. Um, there was some some small money put aside for um, some community environment programs, some threatened species um, pr- protection work, which is great um, in and of itself. They're great individual programs, but I think the point ACF makes and others makes is that our threats to climate and uh, nature and animals and biodiversity are systemic, they're widespread, and they require large systemic responses, mm. um, not you know, piecemeal, small investments, um, which, you know, in and of themselves are a good thing. Any dollar for the environment is a good dollar spent, but we just need so much more. And and we were speaking to Andrew before, and and I asked her whether she got the sense that one of the biggest clangers that Labor made was having this open checkbook policy on climate. Did you feel during the last three weeks that Bill Shorten and his team were just sort of saying, well, we'll give you what you want, here's the money that we're going to give on climate change, but didn't have any substance behind it? Look, I didn't have that sense, um, potentially because of the work I do and the background I have. I thought, you know, from my perspective, Labor's commitments around the climate and environment, while inherently positive and and much stronger than the coalitions were still a little bit um, kind of restrained from Mm. what they could have been. Yes, I mean, I I remember thinking that uh, even if, you know, this morning we had a different story and that Labor had been elected, I was thinking we're going to have a hell of a lot of work to do because uh, Bill Shorten was not, he was kind of non-committal on Adani the whole time. So I I didn't quite see the open open book kind of... I, I I will say, though, that I think that was a predominant narrative in the campaign, I mean, Tony Abbott, um, a bit low to quote Tony Abbott, but he said in his uh, in his speech conceding Warringah on the weekend that when climate change is an economic issue, the yeah. Liberal Party do better. When it's a moral issue, they really struggle. Um, I actually kind of reject that entire uh, kind of oppositional decision. I don't think morality and economics are necessarily intention yeah. and if you yeah. do accept that i think we have you know some much bigger problems i don't think we have to accept that it's a just choice between jobs or the the future of you know the thousands of kids that went out and strike during the election and beforehand yes, yeah. i um, agree about yeah. positioning it in that way is useful to certain groups yeah of course and mm. i think it does lead mm. to the perception by some obviously some in the voting public that you know, particularly Labor's policies yeah. or, or even a more ambitious policy than Labor is some kind of, you know, economically reckless policy that's going to, you know, cost a whole bunch of money. Mm. I think, mm. you know, there is plenty of data and economic analysis that shows that actually it's completely the opposite case. And I think yes. we just got to do a better job of, you know, communicating that. Yeah, and Ross Garnell, I think, recently just talked about how much money, you know, Australia could make I and mean, the, the economic benefits of really going for renewables. Yeah, completely. I mean, the you know the all the economic forces are pushing us towards renewables and to new, new for, uh, forms of of clean energy. And look, it's my hope that this government starts to mm. you know speak more and prioritise their spending as well. Yeah, look, yeah. because there there are forces beyond Australia that are pushing the world to clean technologies, and we can either act um, to adapt to that and to take on those opportunities and the jobs and the economic benefits and of course the vast 
climate and nature benefits mm. that those will bring, or we can kind of reject them. But I think we're going to get left in the dust, and we're going to we're going to lose a, a big um, economic opportunity that otherwise Australia will be really well positioned. Mm. Um, to take a hold of. Busy focusing on trying to drill for oil. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, so so the economics, from your point of view as an economist, are clear that it's beneficial to actually invest in renewables. Yeah, um, absolutely. And Mm. look, I think I would say absolutely. I would happily sit here for hours and give you the economic arguments for, um, you know, investing in in clean technologies and renewable energy. Um, But I think more importantly, and I think something we'll have to really think about how we communicate going further is it is not just an economic issue mm. like Tony yeah. Abbott and other um, you know, coalition and conservative um, members would have you believe. It's also not just a moral issue. It can be, it can be both. It's the future of our, mm. our planet. It and, is and both. Our I mean, so they're intertwined. I mean, yeah. there's just no question. Yeah. And, and to separate that out is uh, misleading, among other things. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what was ACF's strategy during the campaign? What was AC, ACF kind of focusing on, hoping to achieve? Yeah, so ACF's strategy was to make this the climate election. And I think for the most part, maybe the final result aside, we were successful in that we mobilised a huge number of people throughout communities across Australia to have conversations, meaningful conversations about the climate and what that meant to them. We knocked on... I think about 15,000 doors. We made hundreds of thousands of phone calls. Um, we ended up, up having over 100,000 people commit to be climate voters when they went to the polls. Um, and we worked in a broad coalition across Australia, um, mobilising people around issues of environment and climate like you know they never had before. And mm. the strategy behind that was you know to kind of proof ourselves against. Uh, election outcomes like this, we want to make climate a non-partisan issue that when you go to the polls, regardless of political affiliation, a sound climate and environment policy is a, a standard form thing that you must have to be a credible political voice in mm. this country. And we'll see whether that strategy yes. has worked, but you know, regardless of this election outcome, we were committed to keep mm. working to that strategy, to keep engaging with the hundreds of thousands of Australians across the country who are now motivated by climate change and to keep speaking up and acting out for the environment and climate because that's the only way we can make yes. effective change. And uh, if you've just tuned in, we're speaking with Fergus Kinnaird from the Australian Conservation Foundation, or the ACF as it's commonly known. So are you, reg- I mean, I, I hear what you're saying that this, is your, this was your strategy for the campaign and it's your strategy in a way into the future to keep having those conversations. Are there any other things that you, you I mean, it's still early days, mm. I know, but is there anything else that you have in mind? Um, uh, to be honest, I'm, I'm I'm a little unsure. I'm I'm uh, I can definitely say at this point I'm co- I'm confident that the the solution to our environment and climate crisis in Australia is more democratic participation, more civic engagement, not less. Um, I'm sure there'll be conversations of the next weeks and months over the specific strategies and tactics of how to deploy that um, engagement and participation. Maybe there'll be some rethinks about the most effective ways, but I'm sure a core part of ACF strategy, my own personal strategy, and, yep. and those of progressive movements across the country will be continuing to have conversations and encourage people to speak up and stand out and stand up for the issues that they care about because, I mean, I think that is proven that that is the way to 
to make change. Yes, and and I was at an Extinction Rebellion demonstration at the IPA on Friday, (laughs) and we're going to hear more about that later in the show. So definitely, um, yeah, people will be continuing to be active on the environment. I'm sure they will. No question about that. Now, on Friday, um, just just as you know, we were heading, getting ready to head to the polls, we heard the sad news that, that Bob Hawke had passed away. And I noticed that the ACF had uh, actually put out a tribute to Bob Hawke and uh, the policies in relation to the environment that he'd uh, promoted. So um, that was, I thought that was interesting. Do you have anything to, to say about that? As a yeah, I mean, I completely <laughs> reflect the, the tribute ACF put out. I think um, in terms of environment and climate leadership, Bob Hawke is a hero of mine in the Australian like, political landscape. Um, he had some absolutely incredible um, kind of landmark decisions through um, his time as Prime Minister, mm-hmm. I think, uh, and it's certainly his home for um, ACF in particular. Uh, ACF worked really closely with the National Farmers Federation and then um, Bob Hawke to get uh, land ca- the land care program yeah, up and running, which is it's been yeah. a, a hugely successful yes. uh, grassroots community program to mm-hmm. you know, do restorative actions on um, private land and work with landowners and, and farmers to um, reinvest in in landscapes and, and natural places. Um, that's a legacy for ACF. It's also a, a legacy for the National Farmers mm-hmm. um, Federation, and it's certainly um, a legacy for, for Bob Hawke. It's mm-hmm. the kind of bipartisan, um, I think, work that we yes. you know, really need more of right now. And I'd obviously be remiss to talk about Bob Hawke in my capacity as this, <clears throat> an employee yeah. of ACF and not mention the Franklin. I yeah. mean, yeah, Bob and the, uh, banning uranium mining in Jabaluka in Arnhem Land was one because I, I read somewhere eight ways that his government changed. Yeah, um, Australia was those two, especially the yeah. Conservation Act of 1983. He, he was involved in. Yeah, he's up. critically important in that, and also critically important in um, banning mining in the mm. Antarctica. He was yes, a, a key voice stopped, leading for that. Yeah, so mining in Antarctica. That was I didn't know that. That was quite an amazing. Yeah, just a, just a, uh, mm. had some environmental wins that. Um, yeah, will I think continue to go down um, in history is in vastly important for how this country mm. kind of and is. people sort of <laughs> always talk about you know uh, floating the dollar, launching Medicare, and then superannuation. But the environment side of it about Bob Hawke, people know more about his yard glass exploits than the work that he's helped <laughs> you know with yeah. environmental. Uh, but speaking of Medicare, I mean, just, um, you know, as, as we were, like you were talking about Bob Hawke as having been a, a hero for you, and uh, I'm sure, Dean, you've got mm. some memories of him. I think that one of the things I remember is having moved to Australia as a migrant with, you know, <laughs> no, you know no, very little cash at all, two young children, and uh, when we came, when the children got sick, we'd have to take them to emergency mm. because we couldn't afford to actually go to a doctor, mm. and we'd be scraping the money together, usually to just we'd go to the children's hospital, and that was in Sydney and Camperdown at the time, and scraping the money maybe for um, you know a taxi if it was it looked like it was quite serious. So with the introduction of Medicare, you know that already already made a big difference in our lives. So that's one thing. But I suppose the other is uh, the response to HIV and. Australia. Mm. And I know that Neil Blewett deserves a lot of the credit. He was the health minister at the time and a very forward-thinking person. But uh, Bob Hawke obviously was the prime minister and supported that. So, you know, they formed, you know, you talked about collaborations, Mm. uh, Fergus, and uh, collaborations with um, the gay community, 
sex workers, youth workers, people across the board to prevent HIV and the spread of HIV, uh, injecting drug users, which is, I think, where we got the um, safe inject or um, needle clean needle program, mm. safe injecting programs. So it was, you know, he was really ahead of our time around the the drug policies and around the HIV AIDS epidemic. And uh, if we hadn't had that kind of leadership, Australia would have looked very different in the spread of HIV. So I suppose from a health point of view, I often think about that. I mean, Dean, did you have any? Oh, no, I just, look, I think it gets forgotten too that, you know, with him opening the Australian economy to uh, global competition, it meant that there were opportunities for people from other countries to come and join the Australian labour workforce. So having migrated from you know, South Africa because they needed nurses in Australia, which was obviously a a position that um, someone like Bob Hawke in the 80s had decided, you know, we need to grow the economy, so we need to have skilled migrants come into the country Mm -hmm. and then, you know, to come to a place where you could go to hospital without having to worry about, you know, Mm -hmm. the implications of the the Um, bill that you get. It was just, yeah, yeah, um, it was. he did a fantastic job and he was loved. He was a man of the... The people, um, he was Prime Minister from 1981 to 1991, which is pretty much the three terms that mm-hmm. a Liberal has had um, without a change. Yeah. Um, but, you know... And, and I mean, you know, obviously there's, there's a debate both ways, and certainly the neoliberal... Uh, policies mm. uh, where the interests have been much criticised, and Bob Hawke has been criticised mm-hmm. on at this very station. I would mm-hmm. add <laughs> around some of those policies, yeah. and I also can remember when the change occurred because I was working in Young People's Health around policies, and it would have been probably in the 90s that I got a call from someone in the Federal Department of Health, and young people's suicide was a big issue at the end of the 80s, early 90s. You will all probably be surprised to know it continues to be an issue, Mm -hmm. which says that there's still a lot of policy things that have not been done that need to be done. But anyway, this uh, person who worked there, I can remember her face but not her name. She called me and she said, they're asking, Judith, they're asking, what kind of money we can save if we put in a youth suicide policy. Mm. This is the extent this neoliberal agenda has gone. So while you know, I, I want to recognize and uh, celebrate all the fantastic things that Bob Hawke did under, you know, when he was prime minister and, and recognizing all that, also to know that there was another side where people were very critical as well. So you know, always it's good to be balanced mm-hmm. but on the environment Fergus no I, yeah. I think that's a really important point and you know Bob Hawke wasn't a, a perfect politi- politician by by any account and I'd probably have some of the same criticisms that have been carried oh, on the show before of course but look I think when he I think the reason he was um, you know so effective on so many environmental issues was um, because I think in at least in that policy area um, kind of what going back to what we were talking about before he was really good at distilling that false choice between the economy and what is the moral, mm. morally correct thing to do. I actually have a quote as part of ACS Tribute. He said, um, when launching the State of the Environment Report, um, I think in 1989, so in the midst of the, uh, the end of the Franklin campaign, he said, when the earth is spoiled, humanity and all living things are diminished. We've taken too much from the earth and given too little back. It's time to say enough is enough. And I think that is a really powerful quote from a leader, and it distills, like, it kind of cuts through that false choice, right? Mm. Yeah. On the environment, sometimes there is yeah. just a really clear thing to do. We can either protect a landscape or not. We can save a critter or not. And Bob Hawke was a really effective politician in that regard because he stood up and he made 
those moral choices for the environment. And I think this is where something like the coalition have essentially wasted the last six years by not developing any concrete plans um, to deal with the serious, um, I guess, uh, climate issues that Australians face, you know, and, and they've sort of been funding the environment at very long-run lows, which means w- where we're going to go, it might still be an issue in 20 years' time, just like the, the, the youth suicide. Where if you don't put a plan together, it keeps going. Yeah, well, look, potentially that's like, you know, a final point to leave with is that a lot is made of the, the costs of climate yeah. action now, which, again, could go... Gone for hours about some of the yeah. you know the ways that has been miscommunicated and misappropriated and the election campaign and before that, but I think you make a, a really good point. Like we know that we're in the midst of a climate emergency and uh, also a species extinction emergency. Yeah. Um, we're seeing natural landscapes and biodiversity decline at really alarming rates, um, and at the same time, the investment. Um, to address those issues has been really piecemeal and way way too slow. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, solving these massive problems, like solving any problems, has a cost. Um, and I think if we fail to bear those costs now, and we don't invest enough now, all we're doing is passing on the yeah. costs of a much uh, a, a much faster action to future generations, to the kids who are, you know, striking now, asking leaders to represent them. Um, like. Th- these are existential threats to not just Australia but the world. Yeah. Solving them is going to cost governments money and like we can either start spending now and spread that cost yeah. out in a reasonable fashion or we'll we can whack it on the late. next generation and let them deal with it and potentially they, you know, they could spend 100% of their GDP and it could be too late. So you know, my hope is that the ACF and movements around the country will keep prosecuting that issue and, um, you know, keep asking, you know, what a reasonable government to invest in the climate and environment and, you know, kind of pay some of that cost so the future generations don't have to do it all themselves. Well, Fergus Kinnaird, thank you so much for coming in to Thanks 3CR this morning. Thanks. And uh, lovely to have you in the studio, especially. Yeah, it's, it's good to uh, be here. Yeah, terrific. The Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of July at the Greek Orthodox Church, 23-29 to 29 Victoria Street, Coburg. The conference will take a look at whether the Aussie fair go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 0477 236-880. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition. Free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. In 2019, 3CR has the power. Add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 03 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 
3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio. was Struggle by Black Rock Band out of Arnhem Land. Just such a great group. Wonderful to see them at the North Club Social Club uh, last year. And, uh, on be- and so now we have uh, Mary Crooks in the studio, which is fantastic. Morning, Mary- Judith. <laughs> Mary is the uh, executive director of the Victorian Women's Trust, well known to Victorians for her activism, community consultation work, community engagement. understand, Mary, you worked on the Purple Sage Project. Uh, Long time ago, and our <coughs> watermark Australia, yeah, and but all those those projects involved consultation, working with people, talking to people, and I think that's in some ways how you're known as a person that does that. Um, so I noticed on the website for the uh, Victorian Women's Trust there was a quote from you saying, "The future has a name, gender equality." Wondering how it's looking after after Saturday's election. <clears throat> From a government point of view, it's not looking great. <clears throat> Excuse me. Because um, I, I just, in coming here, Judith, I thought, you know, I just jotted down um, a, a quick ready reckoner of losers and winners. Um, so one of the first one well, I'd say is women and gender equality because the opposition actually bought a raft of really positive policies for women, including the bold policy that Tanya Plibersek took about funding of public hospitals um, if uh, contingent on them providing reproductive services for women. Um, so we're, we're going to lose out on, on those kind of advances, um, more's the pity. But I think some of the other quick losers, truth is a casualty in this oh, election. Interesting. And, and yes. I, think it, I think it has to raise a debate again at the community level because the politicians won't embrace it on their own. Of some kind of truth commission, we expect corporations and we have consumer law uh, where people are obliged to tell the truth. <clears throat> and we've seen some fearful lies being peddled in this campaign. Labor did the same around Mediscare years ago, so it's not one side or the other here. Yes. But I think in, an, in a democratic culture, uh, you can't afford to have great big lies being unchecked uh, at a formal institutional level during a campaign. I was thinking my heart goes out to anybody on Newstart um, in this oh, country yes. today because yes, you know, the chances sure. of any reform in, in that respect... Um, I think are gone. Uh, Indigenous recognition uh, is a real loser because there was a commitment to a referendum in the first term of the shortened government. Um, that that is uh, that's a cause of grief for me. Policy is a loser because now the recriminations are Labor had too much policy, didn't explain them well enough, and yet we had a government that won because they had no policy. I know. I mean, um, that's the big question So, right And, now. you know, I'm a policy wonk. I, I think policy is about clearly articulated, values-based uh, things you'll do to enhance the common good, for example. Uh, so to see policy trashed in that way. The other thing, the other big loser, I think, is, is anybody on the NDIS program in this country um, in, in the sense that we've had three government ministers at the least over the last six years We've had a shambolic application 
in the development of the NDIS, which should be one of the great markers of welfare reform mm. in this country. Um, and so, you know, when you've got situations of, of um, you know, people waiting a year for a wheelchair and when the, when the wheelchair arrives, there are no wheels, I actually think my one criticism I would have of the Labor opposition is that it, without engaging in smear, they should have turned the tables back on the, on the government about their inability to manage departments. So if they think they can manage the economy, how come you can't manage the implementation of a scheme like the NDIS? <clears throat> in terms of winners, here's a quirky list. I actually think Shorten was a winner in the sense that he has to put up with so much stuff about Shifty, Shorten and whatever. I think he held his ground. I think he conducted the campaign with grace and was calm and, and I wish him well. Um, Clive Palmer was a winner, um, having spent somewhere between 60 and $80 million, didn't win a seat, but one in eight Queensland voters voted for either Palmer or One Nation. So I think that puts him a winner. Um, he will have, um, he'll have the Morrison government um, uh, in a tight grasp on a lot of policy matters. Uh, Helen Haynes is a winner in Indi. The Women's Trust was involved in the, in the uh, community engagement process that led Cathy McGowan to become elected. So it is thrilling to have been a little cog in that wheel whereby in history was made where we've, it's the first time nationally uh, over 120 years that an independent has won a seat um, again after two terms yes. of another independent. Yeah. Um, self-interest is a winner. Um, self-funded retirees have had a year to get their finances in order uh, and, chose, uh, and chose to make this um, a rod for our backs by um, voting Conservative. Morrison is a winner, obviously. I think he, when he has another life, he should be a managing director of a wallpaper company because he's been able to wallpaper over the serious cracks in his party. Um, he is our Trump at the moment, in my view, in that he's gone to the people without any policy um, and he's gone the man the yes, whole time. Yes, he has, and they're very much the presidential style. Julie Bishop is a winner because she quit um, uh, with grace and poise, uh, uh, with her reputation intact, and she'll go on and do good things. And um, finally, Melissa Price is a winner because she's now out of witness protection. Oh, <laughs> and then the, they were saying that she's going to... Continue. She'll have to reappear. So yeah. she's a winner because yeah. she'll now be able to come out and, and, and breathe again and come out of jail. Oh, no, oh, Mary. So there you go. <laughs> there, well, that's, those are your thoughts on your way here this morning. <laughs> yeah. And no doubt they were cogitating over the weekend as they well. Were, they were cogitating mm. yesterday. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And, uh, of course, the reason that uh, I first contacted you to come on was to talk about your new, or the, the, uh, the trust project about bloody time. Yeah, well, onwards and upwards. <clears throat> and I think, you know, we, we all, you know, we will all take... Uh, lessons and uh, reflections out of the weekend and a lot of people are doing it hard a lot of people are bruised and hurt and a lot of people are euphoric uh, yeah I, sorry I just met someone who was euphoric I was so surprised yeah mm. <laughs> My but look, you know, yeah. But look um, you know at the end of the day uh, you know you you can't afford to fret about things over which you have no control uh, and you have to actually um, you know one of my favorite lines from poet Emily Dickinson is, um, you know, um, uh, as we grow older with the years, we become newer by the day. Uh, and I think you have to just bounce back 
and recommit to the things that are important to you. And this work the Women's Trust has done on menstruation and menopause, uh, we are really excited by this. We, we, think, we think there's a game changer in this publication because it, um, it's subtitled The Menstrual Revolution We Have to Have. Mary, can I just interrupt you there and ask, how did it come about? Uh, it came about many years ago, actually, um, when a group of um, um, Australian menstrual educators, because uh, there's not a lot of menstrual education in the mainstream of our population, and these women are very, very good at their work, but they're sort of over on the margins. Uh, and they came to us to see if we, we might climb on board and try and forge a partnership and bring, and bring the issue of, of menstruation menopause out into the open and in a, with a reform agenda, not and, just and to talk need, about it. And what needed to be reformed? Well, the fact is that we are subject, um, uh, almost every woman and girl in this country, in our culture and in cultures around the world, um, are subjected to a really pervasive menstrual taboo. Uh, on the one hand, we occupy bodies that are quite awesome in their physiology and their biological integrity, and yet we, from the minute we become socialised in our culture, we, we are socialised to mistrust, to demean, to see our bodies as being dirty, unhygienic, um, awkward, embarrassed, secretive about it. And, and it holds women back. We have... We, we have this deep subliminal disconnect between our cycle and our bodies and it, it works itself into our relationships, into our workplaces. Uh, I've seen one of the positives of this, for example, our organisation was one of the first, I think, in Australia to actually develop a menstrual leave policy. Mm. Um, and um, I've seen over the last three years, I've seen the benefits of that policy. Uh, it's an almost all-female environment um, but it's become more open on this question. Uh, there's more support and responsiveness. Uh, women get looked after when they are, in fact, uh, menstruating or going through menopause in terms of a time to rest and care and look after themselves. Uh, and we get paid back in spades in terms of commitment and productivity. Yes. Now, and I also understand just coming with the book, and I'm, it's interesting that you've also, because initially I thought this is for young, young women maybe who are beginning to menstruate, but as you said, it covers menopause as no, well. No, it's, it's the life cycle. It's, it's not just menopause. Thing. It's yeah. women going to childbirth. Yes. Uh, it's the whole life cycle. And, you know, I think the... the um, I, I'm wrapped because... I mean, there, you know, it's not the first time that something's been published about menstruation menopause, but I think it's the first time that there's such a really good political economy of it, in a way, of trying to locate and contextualise where does this taboo come from, why does it exist, what supports it on an ongoing basis. And, you know, all taboos, I mean, there are some good taboos in a society, you know, like a, the taboo about, you know, protecting um, children and, being, and pedophilia being taboo, is a good thing, but but to have a taboo operating in a way that that aspects of women's physiology is held against them like this, no, we need to shift it, we need to dismantle it, mm. and I think a lot of benefits can flow from that in terms of women themselves looking after themselves uh, in their relationships with others, uh, their mothers and fathers to their children, workplaces, uh, and I think... Our, our health systems, I mean, one of the things we want to champion in this book, we, we need, we will work once it's published. We will start working 
at an advocacy level on putting menstrual well-being as one of our public health standards in this country. Okay. Uh, And one of those, you know, um, things that might have held women back or made the subject taboo were things like, you know, it took 15 years for to have menstrual products being GST-free in Australia, whereas in Kenya they've had it since 2004, you know, and that whole 15-year timeline could have been contributing to yep. the tabooness of the topic as well. Yeah, and, you know, um, that, that was um, a bad law then in this country, a bad mm. tax. It's always been a bad tax, yeah. and thank yeah. goodness it's been lifted. Yeah, and uh, you did a lot of consultation in, in preparation for writing this book. So you, was this around Victoria that you went out and talked to people? Uh, uh, we we conducted a survey. It was a you know um, it wasn't a um, a, a, a randomised survey, uh, but that doesn't worry me because I've you know I've done um, I mean I used to teach and lecture social research at tertiary level, so I understand a bit about this. We've got a survey population of over 3,500 respondents um, from around the world, actually, but mainly Australia. Um, and it's a self-selecting survey. But when, when you have a survey of that size, you actually do see patterns that repeat and repeat and repeat. And one of the things, Judith, that um, saddened me in a way and sort of quite shocked me uh, is that the, the uh, degree of negativity that women can hold around their bodies because of the cultural oppression around menstruation uh, is not different generationally. And I was surprised by the fact that I would have thought that, you know, women in my age cohort, I could understand us going through life with this negativity. But it surprised and shocked me that it's actually there in the current generation of teenage girls. And, you know, when, when you've got, as it was told anecdotally to us, when you've told, told, for example, that there are teenage girls who actually go on the pill not necessarily for contraceptive purposes but not to bleed mm. uh, is actually quite a dislocating thought for me. Of yes, it is of for me too. Your connection yeah. and the, the respect, yes. mm. the self-respect for your own bodily system and its functions. Yes, and so it sounds like you've gathered the data, you've looked at the patterns, and based on that, you've developed a book. And I I have a feeling from what I've read that quite a few people have volunteered their help and support in getting it together. It's been fantastic. Look, we had had initially, we had a a woman, Belinda Gross, um, put out some money for us to start the project, but a lot of our own supporters have come on board, you know, $75 here, $100 there, and we've run um, a great, from my staff, they've run a great possible campaign which has raised money to help publish the book. Um, but the, um, and the book, the authors, the writing team that, that uh, we put together of Karen Pickering and Jane Bennett has been brilliant uh, because Karen, you know, is a, a um, incredibly impressive um, feminist thinker at the intellectual and conceptual level and Jane Bennett is one of this country's foremost menstrual educators so we've put them together and it's been it's been actually joyful to watch them work together and I've had the privilege of working with the two of them and, and what kind of sorry I was yeah. asking is it is it for all ages I mean obviously you mentioned yes it is Dean yeah. and, and and I think I, I think that guys like yourself are going to really get a lot out of reading this book mm. as well, even though it's about us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, no, well, I, I think it's we make up part of, <clears throat> I guess, our whole world in that sense. And know? we've we've yeah. had that in mind actually. So, you know, the the um, we, we've had you know we've not had men as our primary audience, mm. but most certainly there as a secondary audience. Mm. In, in, it's so important that men are educated well enough about it to not make. Mm. 
those mistakes I mean from a personal experience the the sort of um, comments that you'll get if you are as a woman you're rationally annoyed about something and the comment of yeah I think she's on a period mm. Mm. no but you're just being a twat yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm totally rational yeah. to say this and I think taking it and that's what I was asking you know do, will you have a schools package that later on can go into schools because then you can you know, teach it to young boys within yes. a class environment. Yes, what, what we're working on uh, <coughs> with, uh, excuse me, <coughs> um, Jane Bennett I just mentioned, uh, once the book is published, uh, Jane and the Women's Trust will sign a services agreement in which there will be an outreach program yep. that she will essentially take and run with. Yep. So she will bestow on her our intellectual property and she'll take and run and, and develop outreach programs, schools, workplaces, whatever, in Victoria and hopefully nationally. And I'm um, just going back, I mean, first of all, that's great. That's great that, the, you know, the news is going to be spread and people are going to be talking about it, thinking about it. How, what kind of response did you have to your possible fundraising campaign? We had a great response. We, we set the first target of 15000 to pay our designers and Illustrators, and we we raised that within six days. That's inc- that's wow. incredible. And then that we set incredible. a stretch target of twenty five grand, and I think we're almost onto that. Yeah, so it, it's it, great. Yeah, so if people want to contribute to that possible campaign, is still going. It's still going up until the day of publication. But to be honest, <clears throat> I um, by all means do that. But I, I I want to see us going into print run after print run after print run. So I think once the book's available on the fifth of June. Uh, I'd love people to just, you know, at $30, get out there, buy it, buy a copy for the families, for the men, the boys, the girls, the women in the families. Yes. And when, when, where is the launch? The launch is at the, to that. <coughs> the launch is at the Church for All Nations on the 5th of June, Wednesday the 5th of June, at about 5.36 o'clock. You'd have to get in quick because okay. I think it's, it's going to be full to capacity. It's very exciting. Karen and Jane will be in conversation with me at that launch uh, with an introduction by Clementine Ford, who has written the introduction to the book. And I heard you're taking it on the road. Taking it on the road, at least in Victoria at this point. We will be in uh, Ballarat, um, Bendigo, Castlemaine, Wonthaggy, and we're in discussions with people in South Australia and Western Australia. And isn't it fantastic that we're at a point at an age now where even 10 years ago there are certain topics that uh, um, I guess people feel <coughs> liberated to talk about, especially men and women. You know, when you, mm. If you've got daughters, even if you don't, there's an opportunity for you to learn something and be enlightened about, I guess, what your partner is going through or what your daughter might be going through. And to, to have a book such as this, the, the Menstrual Revolution We Had to Have, great title. About it, bloody time. Yeah, yes. Yeah. About <laughs> bloody time. Mary Cook, yeah. thank you so very much for coming in this morning. It's a pleasure, it's been, thank you. And sorry for your comments on the election too. Yeah, very, yeah, added a lot. Well, I guess if I could just close off by saying, you know, I mean, despite how people feel on, you know, what part of the political spectrum you are, uh, when things don't go your way, um, you know, this kind of, you've got to bounce back. We are, we've got to just be our full active citizen in so many ways. So if there's something to be reformed and changed, if there are issues in which you have to drag your politicians kicking and screaming into the future, well, that's what all of us really are charged to do. 
Well, mm-hmm. thank you, Mary Ann, that we're going to do just that because we're going to hear from Instinct, uh, Extinction Rebellion and their demo at the IPA last Friday. So, yes, we're certainly going to carry on that activism. Fantastic. It's been great to meet you, great to have you in the studio, and uh, I hope you come back again once the book's published and hear a bit more how it's going. Just ask me. Okay. Thank <laughs> Thanks, Mary. Thank you. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised logging, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories, from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control, with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised, so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. Attention book lovers, the new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662-3744. That's 9662-3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter. Last Friday, I went down to the Extinction Rebellion action at the Institute for Public Affairs of 410 Collins Street here in Melbourne. There was a small crowd, a lot of police, and lots of enthusiasm among the people who were there. We're here to, to glue on in front of the Institute of Public Affairs and make apparent the, the issues that are, are being funded by them, such as climate change scepticism. I'm here because we're in a climate emergency. The planet is dying. It's time to act now, and we're enacting a time-honoured tradition of civil disobedience. The suffragettes did it, the civil rights movement did it, the workers' rights movement did it, and now we have to rise up and save our planet. We're taking that stand here. Our climate and our earth is in a really dire situation, and it requires direct action. We can't really rely too much on our leading government parties to be taking that action. Are you disappointed in what you've heard from the two major parties? I am, and I'm especially disappointed to see some politicians taking the stand of, yes, we're going to take action on climate, but then promising like $1.5 billion for fracking and for gas lines and not taking a stance on stopping Adani. All of these projects are going to have really catastrophic consequences on our earth. What are you looking for from the government, from our leaders? to tell the truth and to really admit to themselves and to the rest of the people so that everyone can be aware and understand the weight of the situation that we are in now. The IPA, Institute of Public Affairs, funded to a large extent by fossil fuel interests. They're very private for 
institute with that name. So they've got links deep within the, the Liberal Party, buying influence within our government. Democracy suffers for that. We're facing a climate emergency. The house is on fire, as Greta says. We don't stand there arguing about how hot it is. We take action to put out the flames, and that's why we're here, putting out some flames. I'm worried about my future. I'm worried about the future of this generation and all of those generations still to come. Unless we take unprecedented action to reduce emissions, keep global warming to the lowest degree possible, our children are not going to have a good future. Our government has failed us. They are in the pockets of fossil fuel companies. When 200 species are going extinct every single day, it's not okay. And that last speaker was Molly, who glued herself to the steps of 410 Collins Street here in Melbourne to prevent people from entering the offices of the Institute of Public Affairs, or IPA, as it's generally known. As she was joined in this action by Gali, who was also glued to the steps, and Violet, who was glued to the door. Next, Oliver Westwood, spokesperson for the Extinction Rebellion's action at the IPA offices. Here, he refers to the organization's support for climate change deniers. Pushing climate change skepticism removes all opportunities of a successful future. The longer we delay action on the climate emergency in which we find ourselves, the more deaths and disasters we will see in our future. Millions, billions of people's lives are at risk, and an unimaginable amount of species. The sixth mass extinction is underway right now, and we need to change immediately. The climate emergency will impact the freedom of every single human. There are no exceptions to this monumental issue that affects every human being on this planet. And the cost of inaction on climate change will reduce opportunities beyond belief and harm our prosperity. The basic principles upon which the IPA is founded are just, and yet the policies and campaigns outlined by the same institution contradict their own principles, threatening the longevity of humanity and all other beings. We as a people will not stand for this. We demand the government tell the truth about the climate and ecological emergency and that the government acts now. We are here to outline the corrupt, immoral collusion happening between government and corporation. It is happening all over the world, causing mass extinction and destroying our beautiful planet, without which we are nothing. In 10, 20, 50 years' time, when we look back at how we address the biggest issue of today's society, we need to know that we made as much of an effort as possible and that we truly tried. To lead by example is to truly lead. And let's face it, Australia has not been a leader in the name of the environment for quite some time. We are a lucky nation in Australia, privileged to be able to protest freely. Yet change is not happening fast enough, and that is why we are here. Currently, every year, $12 billion of our tax dollars goes towards dirty fossil fuels. An arrangement which has been set up by politicians to enable and continue the corrupt dance of collusion between politics and corporations, ensuring a select number of people make genuinely unfathomable amounts of money, leaving the earth to turmoil and implode, exponentially increasing rates of climate change, harming not just these select few, but every living thing on this earth. Those funding the IPA are the ones making millions, billions of dollars. The policies outlined by the IPA were released on the 19th of April, 2019. These policies are recent and heavily funded. They outline clear goals of keeping coal in power and monopolising the media, 
which is already having the effect of disregarding true democracy and the fundamentals of science. We need to declare a climate emergency and we need support from government and corporations to do that. We have tried signing petitions, waiting patiently for our government to make the changes, but they haven't happened. We demand the government declare a climate and ecological emergency, working with other institutions to communicate the urgency for change. We demand that the government halt biodiversity loss and reduce greenhouse gas emissions to net zero by 2025. Given what we know and have known for decades, to willfully obstruct any serious response to global warming is to knowingly allow entire countries and cultures to disappear. It is to rob the poorest and most vulnerable people on the planet of their lands, their homes, their livelihoods, even their lives and their children's lives and their children's children's lives. These are crimes. They are crimes against the earth and they are crimes against humanity. And that was Oliver Westwood finishing that report on the Extinction Rebellion action at the Institute for Public Affairs in Collins Street, Melbourne, last Friday, May 17th, just before the election. And I think that the feeling there on Friday was that this group's going to keep on going. And if anything, as Mary Crook said earlier, uh, it will just encourage more activism. People will get together. People will be talking more about the climate. Um, One of the things that I was thinking about looking at the election was the fact that if Labour and the Greens, um, you know, if we looked at that vote, we would have a vote for climate and for change. Mm. Um, but um, at the moment, yeah. The vote's just, yeah. Uh, the vote is yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess as of um, the 7 o'clock this morning, if you look at the, the Labor, they had 68 um, party representation, and then the Greens only had 68 one. 68 seats. Yep, 68 yeah. seats. So yeah. with the Greens, that would make them 69. Um, but I guess the main reason that the, the coalition pulled off a miracle is that the Liberal the Liberal National Party, the Nationals and the country Liberals in the Northern Territory are all combined. So Liberal on its own only got 44 seats. And then if you add the 23 of the Liberal National Party and the 10 of the Nationals, that gives you that 77, which it's at at the moment. Yeah. Which um, if you you sort of go, okay, well, it's a two-party preferred system, Labor versus Liberal, based on this... Labor wins, yeah, because it's 68 seats yeah. compared to 44. But the coalition is with the Nationals, which makes it 77. Which a lot of people don't really explain to to no. to, I guess, the voters. And I guess if we're looking at the mood of the electorate, uh, given the, you know the votes of of the Greens and Labor, mm. there does seem to be a major concern about climate change, and uh, yeah, perhaps more than the um, results of who's sitting in the house uh, yeah. has indicated. Yeah. And in the UK, uh, sorry, just yeah, go, go do. Um, yeah. In the UK, so we we'll have co- coalitions as well, but they won't be allowed to run as a coalition. So they, yeah, they, they have to be independent. Yeah, they have to be independent, and then the winner or the person who looks as if they're going to be can elected can, can be yeah, then they start scheming and they start bringing in yeah. each other and they start forming alliances. So to me, as an observation, for them to be able to actually run together um, or as a coalition, 
it yeah, just it doesn't make it doesn't sense, make sense yeah. and it just doesn't seem at all democratic was this your first federal election this is the first yeah. my first <laughs> election time in australia and so <laughs> i'm totally just observing everything i'm trying to soak in as much as i can but i'm learning everything at the moment yeah, so, so it's how, amazing. How did you feel of watching on? Like, cause I know you watched some. Yeah, of I watched it, it. Yeah, I watched some of it on Saturday, um, and just very, very similar to UK politics. So it, I could sort of go along with it, and I knew what was going on. But I do one observation that I made that I think is more evident in this election than I've seen before um, is using the wives as PR stunts and pawns as oh, they are everywhere. Yeah, it, well, I mean. Bill Shorten, I, I was flicking through the paper, and you don't see a picture of him without Chloe nearby. Or oh, her she was smiling. there four years ago as well, which I is know, pretty interesting. I, mean, yeah. I, I just found that part of it. So that doesn't. Oh, it that doesn't so, it's so tacky, and it's so old American. school and disgusting. <laughs> I'm just like, I just can't go over that. Oh, that's so interesting. So, so that doesn't happen in the UK? It does, but I don't think, I haven't seen it happen as obvious as I, as I noted it. Oh, I see. Okay. With and was was it mainly Bill Shorten? Yeah. It was always mainly yeah. Bill Shorten. Mm. Yeah. It really was. Okay. Oh, that's a, that's an interesting comment. Mm. Yeah. But even I don't know whether any of you guys saw Scomo's victory speech. Oh, oh it was it's a miracle. So, it was really. I, I felt so sorry for for to have the kids up there and the wife up there who haven't been in the spotlight that whole time. Whereas yeah. if Bill had a one, it might have been a bit different because she's been in practically every photo. Um, but you could see he was really excited about the win, and then he had to do the customary thank his kids and his wife, and they were just really quick kisses. I'm making a judgment here. I couldn't see any affection because you had to concentrate <laughs> on yeah. on what he had to say. And I was like, oh, these kids have been there the whole time, you know. I just it didn't feel very prepared, though, did it? It didn't feel like he oh, had yeah. even... I mean, it was. he just sort of said, well, it's a miracle. I believe in miracles, and Australia's well, great. Well, that fits oh, with his Pentecostal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe there was more preparation. Yeah, yeah, you had the winning one. And then you had the losing one. You've always yeah. got to have the two speeches yeah. written. Yeah, that's right. And actually, I read that there are two files yeah, you know, yeah. that, you, that you've got. Yeah, for sure. And there's just a few tweaks because then, you know, he went yeah. on, I'd like to thank this person. And he just rattled off this list of all of these people, Yeah, you know, who obviously he didn't know they were going to win those seats, but they did. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of thank yous. We have a few thank yous here. Oh, yes. We had some two exciting guests in the studio, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's always wonderful when people come into the studio. And I really was very grateful also to Andrea Carson because I know she was on ABC yesterday morning for two hours. So, you know, talking about the the election and analyzing and then she was off to teach. So really lovely for her to make time to to, um, talk to us about how she was seeing the outcomes of the election. Fergus Kennard from the Australian Conservation Foundation and Mary Crooks and uh, yeah what how wonderful uh, the work she's doing and the book about bloody time the yeah. menstrual revolution we've got to have terrific and um, hopefully next week we'll speak to um, the Ethnic Communities Council of Victoria Chairperson Councillor Chris Pavlidis we're going to have it today but uh, we'll talk about culture and linguistic diversity next week thanks for listening to a Monday Breakfast podcast on 3CR